Hi, I'm Tasha. I run Miyagi's Dog Training and Behavioural Services in Lincolnshire in the UK. I'm also co-chair of the Pet Professional Guild Assistance Animal Division Committee, which happened recently. I'm a Do No Harm moderator for Linda Michaels MA, and I am a co-chair of the SIT Inclusivity Division as well for Interdogs. Welcome, Natasha. I'm super excited to have you here at Backyard Pet Talk. And I'm super excited to have you be from across the pond talking to me today with um, our with our podcast today. So thank you for telling us, you know, kind of a little bit about all your stuff. But I know that there's probably people that don't really they're not in the dog training world. You might not know what all of those names mean and what all that is. So why don't we start by how did you get into dog training? And then you can tell us about some of the titles that you have collected over your time. Okay, cool. So I began sort of dog training as a child. So um, I was obsessed with dogs, absolutely obsessed. So I had lots of dog training books and stuff as a child. And then it began like with my neighbours and then people in the community needed their dogs walking. And it was, you know, like when you see people doing things that aren't really right. And even as like a child, you can define it more as a child. Kind of like that doesn't sit well with me, like a dog yelping and stuff. Um, and then, you know what it's like, you can't get, go to college to study dog training. So then the next thing was like getting normal jobs and going like through proper qualifications and stuff. And then the place where I was working, it, closed so I saw an ad in the paper for a kennel hand and I was like I've got to do that so I went <laughs> to the interview got it and I was so happy and it kind of like built from there so I was working with rescue dogs and protection dogs and boarding dogs but then I quickly realized that things weren't what they seemed and it wasn't quite a nice place that I thought it was so I ended up fostering a dog from there and I left and I went full-time dog training myself so the idea for me was to prevent dogs going into rescue first so that you know like seeing the other side of rescue where you see dogs who are going to be in there for life then they're gonna, never going to get adopted mm -hmm. and I was like I need to do something to help these dogs before it becomes a problem before they're in that situation and then from there it kind of like I found the Pet Professional Guild and I was like, oh, I really like that. That sits really well with me. And then I started to like sign up to their things like the Shop Free Coalition where you pledge like you're going to get rid of prong collars and electric shocks from your guardians. And then you can do an exchange program with them where they'll get a discount. And then from the Pet Professional Guild, I started to see all these qualifications that you could do. And I was like, okay, I like this. And then it just <laughs> kind of went off. From then, I've just been studying ever since. <laughs> that is the thing about being a dog trainer is there's a few schools, but some of the schools are actually not good. Like there's some mm -hmm. local schools here and they still teach traditional training. And so I'll have somebody apply to work with me and they're like, I go to this school and I'm like, well, you're not going to follow the same, you know, I'm a Karen Pryor Academy training partner. I'm a pet professional guild. Like I have APDT, but that's just because it was the first of the dog training conferences and the first of the dog training, you know, communities and certified professional dog trainer. But I was totally like you when I was a teenager, I was training a lab that we had gotten a lab puppy and I was required to put a choke chain on her and I hated it, but I did it because I was a teenager and didn't know any better, but I worked really hard to, I, on my own figured out well, if I give her a piece of cheese, she does stuff. So let's try this. Like totally didn't know what I was doing. And then they wanted me to put a pinch collar on her when she got a little wild. And I tried it once and she cried and I said, absolutely never again. And that oh. was my journey as a teenager too. And then it's like, and like you said, you can't go to college. I went to my 
counselor in high school and said, you know, I really want to be a behavior. I want to do something. And at first I thought the only thing I could do was train killer whales because I didn't know dog training was actually a profession. And so then she said, well, you have to be a vet. That's the only thing you can do with animals. So I went down that path and then met some dog trainers and met vet techs and then became a vet tech that did behavior. So it's funny how we do find these ways. And I think it's just that inner burning in our, in our gut that says, we don't like the way this is going. And yeah. sometimes as young women or, you know, girls, or even if you're young boys, like we don't understand why we don't like it, but we just know there's a feeling, there's an intuition that says there's got to be a better way. And fortunately now, force forward, because I started this, you know, in the nineties. So it was really new. I was fortunate to be in the Bay area in California. So I had, you know, Ian Dunbar and um, Gene Donaldson and we had Trish King and, you know, we had like this hotbed of San Francisco um, trainers. So I got to, I was fortunate that where I ended up in the nineties, but then, you know, was branching out and making this something, a big movement. So of all of these people, I just mentioned some people, I mean, there's so many, do you have any dog trainers that you just really, or behaviorists that you just look up to and like kind of, I'll tell you, mine is Karen overall, the, the pay, because she was the first behaviorist I ever met. I became a vet tech and went to Western veterinary conference and went to her conference, changed my life forever. I will never forget. She said, you cannot treat aggression with aggression. And I had a dog aggressive dog at the time. And I was like, you mean I don't have to do all these things to her anymore. And it totally, it, her conference changed my life. I mean, it, I remember that conference. I don't remember any other conference, like specific meetings I ever really went to at Western after that but that one I remember because Karen overall changed now there's been Karen Pryor and there's a lot of others who have influenced me but how about you yeah same like I really like Karen overall stuff when I first got Hamboy it's the most expensive dog behavior book I'd ever got and I was like this is awesome uh -huh. um so Karen overall because like she did the clicker training and transitioned from killer whales marine life and that kind of thing and like highlighted how important it is to see every animal as sentient so mm -hmm. that really fits with my morals as well uh so karen overall is like definitely up there yes. for me it's like the two um, karens karen overall and karen prior you know they really exactly. made big differences in our in our world yeah absolutely and then like linda michaels so mm -hmm. i've always like really really looked up to linda and then when she was like uh you said I could be a moderator and I was like oh my god this is awesome <laughs> like working with Linda um so that was really cool and then there's loads of dog trainers that like um, and behaviorists who aren't that well known but I really look up to them I'm like oh my god I want to be like you guys mm -hmm. so like um Bree Stewart Andrew Hale Colin Spence there's just so many of them that I yes. just think are absolutely amazing. <laughs> exactly. And I'm so glad that it's starting to, you know, pick up, you know, more and we're seeing more, we're seeing it's slow, but we're seeing more people like even Victoria Stillwell, you know, coming out yeah. and, and challenging um, Caesar Milan, you know, kind of like being parallel to that because, yeah. you know, and I think, I think we, you know, a lot of countries are banning these choke chains and pinch collars and stuff now. And, the United States is the slowest on the planet. So we will have a while still trying to make a difference, you know, one step yeah. at a time. Now you also now are part of Pet Professional Guild somewhat professionally. So <laughs> tell us about how you got involved with Pet Professional Guild. And now you have a new position, right? With Pet Professional yeah. Guild. So tell yeah. us, tell us a little bit. I know about Pet Professional Guild, obviously, as a member, but 
tell um, our listeners a little bit about Pet Professional Guild and how you got involved and and this new position that you started? It was like 2017. I was really struggling with connecting with people. So locally, the local dog trainers who are very old school um, felt very attacked that this young person had come on the scene and I didn't attend the kennel clubs and I didn't attend competitions. I was like, who's this kid who's just turned up and they put fake reviews out and stuff uh, on my business page and they just tried to destroy me from the get-go. And I was very new to Facebook as well because Facebook had never been in my life before. And then I started to meet all these wonderful dog trainers who were sending me friend requests like uh, Ruby Wellsford and Emma Judson and all these people. And I was like, oh, there are actually really nice people out here. Like, wow, there's actually a whole community. And then I was trying to look for an organisation that would reflect me because where I live is very balanced. They've had very balanced trainers in the area and like even last night someone sent me a message about smacking a puppy on the nose and I just like oh no I can't do this and then you know what it's like looking at all the organizations because I think the US like for all the problems that you guys have you've been very up on your education very very fast whereas in the UK like when I was trying to find organizations it was Ian Dunbar Uh so that's the only way I could study at the time and Mm -hmm. then now we've got loads of schools in the UK which is just brilliant so then people saying to me, if you want to look at something where you fit, there's like try to pet professional guild. And I was like, well, I don't know how to get references and that kind of thing. There's like, we can give you a reference as a colleague. I was mm-hmm. like, OK, cool. So the pet professional guild, they're truly force free. And Nikki Touch founded the pet professional guild um, because she saw a young dog with a prong uh, in a pet store car park. And it kind of like built from there. So for the Pet Professional Guild, guardians, so dog owners can come to their website and then find a force-free dog professional in their area. And there's even people who like work with birds and cats and all sorts. It's absolutely amazing. So guardians have a safe place to come to find a registered, insured and heavily vetted professional and then for us guys we've got somewhere that we can learn from we can connect with the community and we can pledge to be entirely force free so I kept looking at their committees as I was getting a bit more experienced and I was like I'm never going to be good enough for any of this (laughs) never going to be good enough (laughs) Um, I guess I've been doing this a really long time you know I became a vet tech in 1999 and was teaching puppy class in 99. So I've been doing this a long time, but I think I remember those stages because I modeled my puppy class after Ian Dunbar. And I remember feeling like such a fake, you know, like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm I'm flying by the seat of my pants because there (laughs) isn't, I mean, there was some support, but not as much. And you feel like you're a fake when you're first coming in, you know, Absolutely. yeah, I totally resonate with that. So. Yeah. Um, and then it was just announced that the assistance animal division was coming in and I got an email and I was like, you know what, I can just try it. And if I don't do, don't get in, I don't get in. It's like, at least I tried. And I got in and I was like, oh, okay. Like, this is new. Uh-huh. Um, so then it just kind of went from there. We're like, we kept having meetings every month and then I started writing blogs and contributing for them. And then it came about that we needed a new chair. So Christina couldn't take it on like as being the sole chair. So then I just dropped an email to Nikki and said, if Christina needs to, I can like help and be a co-chair. And then it just went from there. So That is great. So tell us about that part of the division because Pet Professional Guild, for anybody who's listening that doesn't know, is exactly Nikki Trudge 
started this great organization trying to think it was, a, I remember when it first started, cause I was the president of the society of veterinary behavior technicians. Oh, and wow. we were like having meetings and we're like, there's this new group coming out. It's like head professional guild or something. Like, is it going to be really, you know, force-free? Like we were like vetting it out. And so I was one of those original members who just paid the 20 bucks to be like a member of, I had no idea what I was getting. I had no idea, no idea it was going to grow to what it's grown to and how powerful it has become. So Pet Professional Guild is force free, very, very supportive of the way we train, that we don't yeah. need to use punishment, fear, aversion for training and that, that our animals need, deserve to have the right to be, you know, not hit on the nose when they do something or, and not balanced. And for those who don't know what balance is, because we talked a lot about some terms yeah. here is balanced trainers or trainers who use positive reinforcement and positive punishment. And so if your dog does something bad, you get, they get a punishment. So like a smack on the nose, we'll just say. And then if they do something good, they get a treat. Um, and not usually balanced trainers don't usually use clickers, but they could, but they get a treat. The way I describe that though, is because our timing as humans sucks. Like we yeah. are not good at timing because we have to see the behavior. Then our brain has to tell us how to respond to the behavior. And then we respond. So by then we are a couple seconds after any behavior, whether it's good or bad, but if we punish, then the dog doesn't know really what they were punished for. Cause it's after the fact and it's very unclear and it hurts our relationship. If it's positive, it's okay. Cause it's not going to hurt a relationship. They may have not figured out what they did right the first time, but with repetition, they will figure it out. But with punishment, because our timing is so wrong, they don't necessarily know what they're being punished for. And a balance trainer is like that. So that's, you know, you get praised for good things and punished for bad things. And how I describe it to my clients is it's a little bit like a living in a domestic violence situation, because if you are a domestic violence survivor or in a domestic violence situation, your abuser comes home from work and you don't know, I will say he, just because we're women. And if he yeah. comes in with flowers, okay, today's a good day. If he comes in mad, you could get hurt. It could be yelling, screaming, physical. It could be emotional. So you are always walking on eggshells as that person. That's how I perceive our dogs see a balanced trainer. Are you going to be good or bad? You know, are you going to be good or bad? I mean, and to say everybody's always perfect and never first. I mean, I, you know, there have been times when I yelled at my dogs because they got into something, but it's like trash, but it's not beat down time. You know, it's my own response. And then I have to cool down kind of like, I can't say I never yelled at my kids, you know, like, but, but it's not punishment. It's not consistent. It's not this very arbitrary thing. And it, your emotional bank account is filled. If you're a positive trainer so much that if you make those little slips of something, because it's not intentional, it doesn't ruin your relationship. So that's what a balanced trainer is that they do both. And I have actually advised one time somebody who was doing both. I'm like, your dog is getting so confused. I'd almost rather you just go back to traditional training than try to do both because then at least your dog knows what to expect from you. They know yeah. that you're going to hurt them if they do something bad, but you're not emotionally damaging them where they don't know where they stand with you. So, you know, it's such a hard thing, but that's balanced training. Traditional training in our conversation is choke chains, pinch collars, electric collars, where you purely use punishment or you're trying to discipline them or, you know, teach them that way. Where our force-free yeah. training is we want to teach them what we want them to do. We reward the things we like 
We ignore the things we don't, or we try to manage and prevent the things we don't. We set up a stage so our dogs are, or animals, it can be any animal, our dogs have are more likely to succeed, so they're more likely to get a reward. And if they get a reward, then they're more likely to repeat that behavior because they like the reward. And then we have a better relationship. So just in case somebody gets a li- is listening to this and is like, what? What's a balanced trainer? What's traditional training? <laughs> I thought we should do a little dictionary here for a minute. Yeah. So, um, so that's all of those things. So now you have this position at yeah. the professional guild. So what are some things you get to do now in this position as a co-chair for, you're the co-chair for the assistant dog training, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay. So we've been trying to like spread awareness through blogs. Uh, so with their free magazine that they do pets and their people, uh, creating blogs to raise awareness because the public aren't always aware what is allowed and what's not allowed with a service dog or an assistance dog. And also like gently trying to steer people away from things like prong collars and electric shock collars, because as much as we don't like to think about it, they are still pretty prevalent within the assistance and service dog communities. And we can totally understand why, but then being such a mixed branch of people as well, because many of us have disabilities, we can say we get it, we know how you feel and what it's like, but we can show you that there's still a much kinder way to be working with your dogs. So hopefully it kind of creates a connection for people. And then we're heavily focusing on like education for other professionals and for the community as well. So it's really nice that for the first time, because the UK is absolutely not regulated with assistance dogs and a lot of businesses think that an assistance dog must be a guide dog so you must be blind or you must be deaf and the dog must come from the guide dog association mm-hmm. and then I know in the US you guys have a lot of problems with service dogs and yeah we have a lot of people who abuse it you know they're they have fake service dogs fake service dog you know cards and and so we have a lot of problems where because we have a little more flexibility where businesses are supposed to allow any kind of service dog but the problem is you have the people who fake a service dog. And so that's our problem right now too, is because people who fake it are making it hard for the people who really need it. And, and our laws are very specific. Like you you don't have to be from anything because of that looseness of the law makes it so people abuse it more. So like you guys have a little more strict kind of things and we have more loose and finding that in between it's going to take some time because it's expensive Absolutely. to train a service dog to its full potential, you know, guide dogs and canine assistance and all of those or one-on-one training. It's a lot of time. It's not just training your average pet. It's training yeah. perfect, quote unquote, perfect behavior in public. And it's training very specific skills, you know, picking things up, opening doors. It takes a lot of time, consistency, repetition which can be a challenge, which is why a lot of times you end up getting a service dog from an, an organization. But when you're trying to do it with a, with some kind of, you know, a disability where you like are already have your own limitations and you're trying to train it, it can be hard. And I can see where people would go to a choke chain. I, but it's so disturbing for me when I see a service dog with yeah. a pinch collar, I, why any dog, but service dogs, I'm like, this is your dog. That's your partner for life. That's like helping yeah. you. And, and they have a pinch collar on like it. It's hard for me to wrap my brain around, but at the same time, I can see where, because punishment is quote unquote easier, you know, I mean, it, it can be faster, but you have to look at the downplays of that. Like what happens next? You pinch a dog, you choke a dog, you shock a dog in the moment that behavior might get better. So the human is reinforced. The human's like, look, 
Dog stopped pulling. What's the problem? Dog is like, oh my God, I never want to go on a walk with this person again. And that disconnect is what um, we don't, we need to get people educated about. But, and in, it is funny because I used to help with a lot of service dogs because I, I lived in Northern California where guide dogs with blind had all the things and Bonnie Burgess is up there. And so there's all, you know, had all these dogs, you know, they were switching over, but some of them still use choke chains. And I was like, ah, and then they switched over to gentle leaders and that got better, but there is a trend. It's just slow. You know, it's Absolutely. just slow. Yeah. So how are you helping educate people, you know, about service dog training or assistant dog training in a positive way, you know, in a force free way? Yeah. Um, so aside from the blogs for pets and their people, we've also done a pamphlet as well. So it specifically shows in a very basic way what is a service dog and what a service dog can do, what access rights that they have, uh, what an emotional support animal is, and then uh, what an emotional support or a therapy dog can do, because that is where a lot of people uh, fall down and they don't understand, especially general public. Um, so with this leaflet, they can be handed out to businesses and that kind of thing so that people don't get access refusal. So because that can cause a lot of anxiety and a lot of stress for the handler as well, um, which means that it puts more work onto the dog because a dog can detect that their handler is stressed. Um, and then we are focusing heavily right now on education and how we can get education out there to professionals and guardians and like make the community much better because again with service dog trainers or assistance dog trainers in the UK because we're an unregulated industry anybody mm -hmm. can do it anybody can say here's a certificate for your dog a service dog or an assistance dog when you don't actually need one what you do need is to go to a trainer who knows what they're doing and put you through a for a program mm -hmm. and the other side of it is for owner training it can be really expensive because it's not just a case of oh, I've got someone to behavior I need help with this it's like one or two years of consistent training getting feedback having an assessments and that kind of thing mm -hmm. so it's a lot of money for somebody to invest as well mm -hmm. so it's just creating a feeling of safety and then there's like we're trying to get people to move away from prongs and chokers and that kind of thing it's the guarantee that the the training we do is going to work you're going to have a really beneficial relationship and we also won't see dogs getting retired or washed like as a one-year-old dog because there isn't a lot of education around adolescent dogs so when an, when a dog becomes an adolescent like six months to 12 months and then obviously 18 months for large breeds um that's the most when guardians struggle so then they think that their dog isn't suitable to be an assistance dog when actually their dog is essentially a child at this stage and they need to have a childhood they just need to do things and chew things and be naughty because yes. it's a part of them isn't it yeah oh I love that you said because I currently have a, a client I teach um do private classes um, for clients mostly I deal with a lot of um, fearful aggression reactivity with my privates but but I've done things with some service dogs then I do puppy classes and agility but I currently have somebody who has a poodle she was like i'm ready he's eight weeks old i'm oh. ready to train him to be a service dog i'm like join my puppy class <laughs> let's let him be a puppy let's get him yeah. well socialized and then she just finished the 12 weeks that i have two classes of puppy class so she just finished and so i said okay now just do the basic good manners right now let's just get him training you know because he is a little he's he's settling down but he's you know, he's an adolescent. So, you know, I said, just start teaching him in these, you know, kind ways. And, and she has um, cerebral palsy, I believe too. She has braces. And so 
her limitations. She's walks, has trouble walking, but her dog's already kind of learning to brace her just by, it's kind of cool to watch him because when she first started puppy class, I thought, oh Lord, this puppy has no skills to be a service dog at all, but he's coming around, you know, he's, he's bonding to her. Now he may not have been a good service dog for someone else with some other kinds of situations, but for yeah. her, he's coming around. So we're just working on just do basic training right now. Just do basic training. Cause she's like, I said, well, what skills when he's ready, do you want him to learn? And she's like, really just, I need him to brace me when, if I need to get up. And I'm like, she goes, and I said, do you want him to learn to pick things up? She goes, no, if I haven't picked things up, I'll never do it. And then I will, <laughs> I will become more, you know, I'll have more problems. She goes, no, I still need to do all these things. I just need him really. And I'm like, well, he's already doing that. So I said, just keep doing the training and then we can fine tune the things. And that makes it more cost effective for her. Cause that's what I told her. I said, classes are good. It gets them exposed and they're less expensive because doing a privately trained service dog can be tens of thousands of dollars, mm -hmm. you know, depending where you pick the dog up, whether it's fully trained or partially trained, you know, and what people don't realize is guide dogs for the blind and companion animals, and they all get donations, they get grants. So the reason that guide dogs can give you a dog, quote unquote, for free is because someone else has donated to pay for that trainer to train them for two years or whatever, yeah. however long they need to be trained. And sometimes people don't recognize that. And that's also why the list is long, though, too, because the wait list is long because there's only so many trainers and so many dogs and not all dogs that pass and become, you know, guide dogs in the end. And although yeah. I recently read statistics of when they've changed, I think it, I don't remember if it was a guide dogs. One of the companies switched from choke pinch to positive training and they went from a 50 50 rate to like a 75 percent pass, you know, wow. became guide dogs. So it's showing the studies are starting to show that positive training actually makes more dogs be able to get the career as a service dog than when we use the punishment, which I hope that that information starts coming out more because that's really important for people to understand. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what kind of things are you going to be doing with Pet Professional Guild? You're doing all this education and doing the pamphlets. Do you guys have any other you know, things doing for assistant animals coming up? That's mostly what we're focusing on at the moment because it's such a big project. But we've, like, got more things in the pipeline. So, like, we want to explain what disabilities are because there's a lot of misunderstanding around what a disability is. So being able to pull all of the resources from across the world about disabilities and what disabilities can look like and how they can affect people. Because what you just said about your client is really, really important because... I've dealt with it a lot in private Facebook groups and on Facebook itself where there's a misunderstanding from professionals themselves that disabled people are lazy and that they shouldn't have dogs and that they've got a certain attitude and that they need everything doing for them. Whereas we want them to see that, you know, like step into our lives that our assistance dogs assist us. They don't do everything for us, it's assist. So we want to really explain the emphasis on that and what disabilities can look like and how people with disabilities go through their day-to-day -day lives. And like, you know, they do do things for themselves. They have to do things for themselves to get better, to maintain the mobility that they have and understand that uh, disabilities can be so fluid as well. So one day you may be in tons of pain, unable to move. 
And the next day you may be able to do a lot more. And the other thing that people don't understand about assistance dogs is they think it's all about access to businesses and going into shops and public places. Assistance dogs have to be so chill and they have to be able to just chill with you in bed for an entire day if that's mm -hmm. what you actually need. And that's a lot to ask of a dog. Mm -hmm. um, so to see superpowers in a different way from the dogs and the handlers so that we can explain it more and then people may show a little bit more kindness and compassion. Oh, that's totally true. You know, and disabilities are sometimes invisible. You know, you can't see it like like this client has braces. So she mm -hmm. and she has a, a different gait. So it's pretty obvious, but like not everybody has like if you have seizures or, you know, diabetes and your dog is there to detect your change of smell or, you know, how things are going to change. And you're totally right. So I have chronic Lyme disease. I am in remission now, but there were times, days when I just couldn't get out of bed and my dog was never trained to do that, but he's my Karen Pryor Academy dog. So he had a lot of, you know, training. So there would be times when I would actually have him like, you know, help me get up or, you know, just even sometimes just that emotional support when you are very sick and you're stuck in bed, they see a, a person with a wheelchair or they see a person that's with a cane or blind. It's a little more, ex you know, oh, that's her guide dog. Okay. You know, no big deal. Yeah. Some of their disabilities are invisible, you know, and they could be having, you know, some different things that, that matter. And that's where in the United States, people take advantage, you know, yeah. but it is important to realize, I think you touched on a really important point that I don't think people realize how much work it is for how hard it is to actually be a service dog and what's involved with being a service dog and the responsibility of having a service dog. Yeah. Years ago, I was at an association of professional dog training, APDT conference. And there was a round table and I sat with a woman who trained service dogs and she herself was in a wheelchair and we just were talking about stuff. And she said, you know, what people don't realize is like when our dogs are trained to be with us all the time, like all the time, because they are our eyes, they are yeah. our legs, they are our hands, they are whatever. So she said, what they don't realize is how much work it is to have a real service dog too, because she goes like she was in this hotel and she goes, you know, I wanted to go get ice down the hall and it really need my dog to be with me to go get the ice because it's just you know a couple doors down to get the ice but she said but I can't really leave him in the room while I go get ice because he doesn't know I'm going to be back in two minutes and I'm just getting ice so he gets like I can't do my job I can't do my job and starts to panic sometimes if she would leave him for her because he was always with her so she yeah. says you know then I have to put on his harness and I have to do all that just to go down to get ice because that's the relationship we have, you know, not all service dogs have to be with you 24 seven, but some of them do like if you have a, your, if your dog is your eyes, you know, you might be able to get around your house, but as soon as you leave your house, you always need them with you. Absolutely. Um, you know, especially if you depend on them more than you do a cane, you know, yeah. or that's what frustrates me. I think when people fake yeah. it because they don't realize the relationship that's involved in a real service dog and that the service dog is not there just so that they can bring them into the store for free and, you know, and not have them sit in the car. It's because that dog's there to do a job and that dog yeah. is there to make the person's life better. And I read a book and now I'm blanking on it. I think it's through a dog's eyes or something like that, but it was a, um, about PTSD and veterans. People are like, well, why does a veteran need an assistant dog? You know, and they have these PTSD is debilitating. Um, especially when you're coming, PTSD can be debilitating in any sense. You can be in an abuse. It can be 
uh, car accidents, things. But when you come from war or deployment from military, you've seen things that some humans never will see in their whole life. You know, there's yeah. death and there's, and there's things you have to do like shoot and bomb and like things that you don't would never do as your normal character. So you come home into real life. I worked with some veterans for a while and I do a little bit of work with pets for vets. And, um, I talked to one one time, my cousin was in the army and he said, yeah, it's so bad that he had a big gulp, you know, one of those giant cups from like a thrift store, like a, um, a restaurant or something, a fast food place between his legs, this giant thing of soda. And he was driving down the street and a can, just a soda can rolled across the road. He flipped, turned his car really fast, you know, to the side of the road, pulled off and his soda spilled all over his lap. And he realized his brain instantly thought it was a bomb, yeah. but he was in the United States. I think he was, he was in Colorado. Like there was no threat, but his brain was so trained to look for those. And he had never actually even been in combat. That was just from the training to go to combat that wow. PTSD had happened. And that's the kind of thing where, um, this book I read, and now I can't believe I'm forgetting the name of it. I'll have to look. Um, I think it's Jan Arnold. I want to say, but it was a while ago that I read it. But she talked about training, you know, dogs who come from that are for our service, our men and women who come from military. And sometimes just walk, the, they need that dog just to walk out of the door to the house. Yes. They will not leave their home if they don't have their dog because the dog gives a sense of security. It gives them a sense of safety. Dogs are taught to sit in front of between people if they need that personal space. They're taught to sit behind them if they want their back watched. That psychological PTSD that is involved is invisible. If you just see those people, you don't know that inside their brain is literally on fire from anxiety and stress and fear. And that dog allows them to get out in the real world, sometimes get jobs, you know, in the real world, gets them off of medication, gets them off of addictions if they have used an addiction to help cope with this you know, PTSD. And those are the things that people need to realize. And when they fake it, when they're just Joe who wants his dog to come into the store, he is actually hurting all those people who really need it. Because if Joe's dog pees on something or Doe's dog barks in the restaurant or bites someone, the next time a real service dog comes through that store or that restaurant door, the owner or the manager or the staff is going to be cautious because yeah. they're going to go, wait, is this going to be the same as yeah. that one? The disability act protects us, but from you have being able to, you know, screen, but what do they need? You don't, what's your disability? You know, you have the right to not have to share that. Yeah. The bad part is that then every, you know, people take advantage. And I just really wish people understood that, they think they're not doing anything harmful. Oh, I'm just bringing Fifi, you know, into the grocery store with me because I just want her to be with me. But they don't realize the damage that they're causing to somebody else. And Fifi may be fine, but it just makes everybody on alert on, is that real? Is that not? And it's already hard enough when you have a disability, whether it's physical and obvious or mental or um, chemical you know, it's hard when you think that, am I going to go out and have a seizure? Am I going to go out as my blood close? You know, that's, it's already, life is already hard enough when you deal yeah. with that. And then you get a dog who's going to help you. 
And then because somebody makes your life harder, it's just really not fair. And I just wish people would really, really understand what service dogs are. And so you were going to mention like, and you said that pet professional guilt is really making it clear. So just briefly explain like service dog, therapy dog, and emotional dog. Cause some people might be going, well, I didn't even know there was a difference between a therapy dog, which I get a lot that there's a difference between therapy dog and service dog. And so as pet professional guilds, you know, as the chair, tell us what the difference is of all those things. Okay. So your assistant service dog, they're the dogs that will be supporting you on a daily basis so they'll be going with you everywhere 24 7 so whether you do have a mental health condition such as ptsd or you have a physical disability um and also they may be helping you to get dressed they may go and fetch medication for you they may do deep pressure therapy so if you're about to have a seizure or disassociate because you've got anxiety that kind of thing they'll come and lay on your chest or they'll alert you if you're out in public that you need to sit down because you're about to have a panic attack. Uh, PTSD service dogs can also wake up uh, their guardians from a nightmare, which is really, really important. Um, They can press buttons for uh, the lifts and elevators. Uh, They can pick up the phone. Um, They can alert to alarm systems and they can pull alarm bells. So they are really, really important because a lot of people can't afford carers like in the UK and the US. So having your dog be able to do that and then pull a call to alert somebody like a warden that you're not very well and that you need immediate medical assistance is absolutely huge. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where service dogs and assistance dogs come in, that they play a very important role and a job for the health and safety of their guardians and then with therapy dogs these dogs are also amazing they can support people in the courtroom so if anybody whether a child or an adult has got to face somebody who's really really hurt them the dog can be there to help ground them and they can stroke the dog um hospitals so therapy dogs can go into hospitals visit children and sick people or people at old uh care uh, like elderly care homes uh hospices that kind of thing or even in the workplace now like some workplaces are like yeah let's get a therapy dog in mm-hmm. because it can help people with their mental health with work um and then we have emotional support animals so emotional support animals can be a dog through to a pygmy hedgehog <laughs> exactly. um, which is really cool because these animals play vital roles so these people are very very aware that their dog uh, or their chosen animal isn't a service dog and they don't have the same rights and they accept that it's not a therapy animal but for them it's their emotional support animal so people might be going a hedgehog I have a hedgehog um, and he helps me quite a lot with my sensory needs so the prickles and the spikes that kind of thing that really helps and then when he touches you with his nose because it's wet that helps a lot and then giving you something to focus on because obviously you've got to watch where he's going and he's not going to like fall off a piece of furniture that can help ground somebody quite a lot some people choose to have like mini horses and that kind of thing as their emotional support animal i know once a doctor told me that a patient went into the surgery with a bearded dragon up their sleeve so like the sleeve was moving <laughs> and okay. he was like what is that and then the patient <laughs> lifted back their sleeve and they're like I hope you don't mind. It's my emotional support dragon. And he was like, that is so cool. (laughs) So it can literally be anything just that that person feels connected to that they know is going to really, really help them. And then 
obviously like some airlines will allow emotional support animals onto plane to help that person you know through their travel and that kind of thing so a lot of these people may actually need a service dog but for their own fears like myself when I first got told I needed an assistance dog I was like the whole fake thing again the imposter syndrome like no no that doesn't apply to me your therapist and your doctor working together to like make you aware of how sick you are like with mental health problems and they're like this is going to help you because like being treatment resistant the CBT is not working which is a very special therapy and this is like when you're out and about having a dog will give us the reassurance you're going to be safe mm. a lot of these people with emotional support animals may actually be pushing away because you want to be invisible especially with ptsd mm-hmm. so you want to be invisible you don't want to be seen you have bouts of paranoia and things even like if you haven't been to war and that kind of thing like you said with your cousin the like, training yeah yeah absolutely mm-hmm. there's something so traumatic that can happen in someone's life where you just need to be invisible so having an, an assistance or a service dog you aren't invisible and suddenly people might be picking on you and saying unkind things because when you're walking about and they don't see any equipment under your clothes they just assume that you're faking it mm-hmm. again this makes the community really really hard for people mm-hmm. again um so that's where emotional support animals come in so people may not be ready to to step up and have a service or assistance dog but their animal may ground them and support them so that they can function day to day mm-hmm. yeah for sure and um yeah and, and emotional support animals again because people faked it you know took them on planes and they were you know so they've lost a lot of the rights that they had before and that's why we're having to make things even more clear yeah. i think therapy dogs and service dogs have always had a pretty clear definition if you understood it you know like I get clients who call me and say I want a service dog and I'm like well what's your disability well I just want to take him into hospitals and I want to make people feel good I'm like oh you actually mean you want a therapy dog so I think those two once you know what they are are pretty it's an easy to describe you know it's like one's a volunteer and one has a career you know like but when it came to emotional support people were really trying to go, it was like the backdoor approach to be having a service animal, no training, no nothing. And then, you know, they took advantage of it, you know, and so now they have fewer rights, at least here, but, but it's still good. I mean, in reality, aren't most of our dogs, I mean, I know my dogs are emotional support dogs because when I, you know, my, my animals are my emotional support animals. I don't use them, you know, in anything legally, but they are, and we all benefit from having animals and they could be from that range of support animals where they don't have to have any training to be a support animal. They just sit in your lap at home and and they're fine. And then they have the therapy dogs kind of in between. They have to have at least a canine good citizen-ish, yeah. you know, degree to some level of, of that certification. And then service dogs, you know, they are the master's PhD level of dog training yeah. and their skills are so specific to what yeah. their human needs. Kind of like if you, like you think of them as a nurse, you know, um, yeah. They're a nurse. So sometimes they're helping like my client who needs somebody to brace. Some are opening buttons for them. Some are guiding them. I mean, guide dogs with blind are amazing. Like if there's, you know, if there's traffic, even if the beep says go, you know, on crossing a street and there's traffic coming, the dog will has learned that they're allowed to disobey in order to keep the person safe, which 
you know, blows the minds of people who have the traditional thinking of dogs where they should always do what you say, you know, but sometimes they do, they don't do what you say because they're trying to protect you. So pretty fascinating. And, you know, I think, and if people, I think understood the differences, it would be a lot easier. And if people really, I don't think when people fake it, they're doing it to hurt other people. I don't think that's their intention. I think their intention is I really just want my dog with me when I go to the grocery store. I just really want my dog with me on a plane, but they're not thinking of the whole scheme of things. And then what they're also not thinking with emotional support animals is service dogs, particularly therapy dogs to a degree are taught to be in different environments. So they've been trained to go up and down elevators. If they're going to go on planes or where there's loud noises, they've been desensitized and trained to be in that environment. If they're going to, um, you know, be on busy streets, they're trained in that environment. So, and therapy dog to a degree, like I have, when I've done therapy dog trainings, I used to do a whole program. And one of our things was because some places had elevators and if dogs didn't have elevators training, like they'd go to their first therapy appointment and freak out. So we would find elevators in um, parking lots and parking structures where didn't matter if dogs were in there, they were allowed to be up and down. And just to get the dog used to that feeling, or, you know, if God forbid there was an escalator, you know, or mm-hmm. something. And so the problem with emotional support is they don't require any kind of training at all, but then that means the human has to be more aware of what their animal can handle. So like when, yeah. you know, when it got real popular for right before COVID of everybody was bringing their emotional support animal, I was on planes and I was just like watching, you know, people holding their chihuahua who was like terrified. I'm all that dog is not emotionally supporting you right now. And you are not emotionally supporting that dog either because you're clueless of how terrified this animal is or cats, you know, you know, on an airplane and stuff. Those, when you have an emotional support, you also have to have their consideration of what they've been trained for, what they've been exposed to, because these higher level animal, these, you know, skills have been taught in the other animals. And that's one thing that I always feel a little sad about with, I see emotional support animals, or even, you know, when people decide they're going to put their dog in the cart at the store, you know, and go shopping and their dog is like wide eyed, you know, tails down, ears are back, you know? And I'm like, really, when's your dog be happier at home? (laughs) Like, you know, it's, you really have to think about, you know, all of those, those kinds of things. So definitely I'm, I'm glad we're starting to become aware. I'm really glad Pet Professional Guild is taking a stand and helping explain it because there aren't a lot of groups. Like I feel like I explain a lot. I try to give a lot of information on my website and things for people to know when they ask, but having a broad whole world organization like Pet Professional Guild where they can start explaining these are the three things and these are the things that These are the three positions and you just need to understand the difference. And then also maybe helping the people who are looking for service dogs, making people realize why these organizations need donors, donations, financial backing, because if they had more money, then they could hire more trainers and they could get more dogs and then they could get more dogs to people. But if they don't have the money, then it all just backtracks, you know? So um, that's another piece that I don't think people always, you know, you know, when they're thinking about donating, they're like, oh, why? Or, oh, they have enough money. And it's like, yeah, I mean, it's a, and, and then there are more and more trainers that are doing one-on-one training um, with guide dogs. And then they're raising one 
and then they're selling it after. And then people are like, well, why is it $10,000 or why is this dog so much? And it's like, well, because I just spent, you know, I mean, I trained that dog for four hours every day for the last, you know, two years. That's not free, you know, like yeah. you have to, you know, be able to get it. So, and then when people want to train their own, that's always hard because if you yeah. have a pretty significant disability yourself where your, you know, mobility is limited or your mental capacity is limited. That's where I always get worried when people I've had people, I live near a Navy base. So a lot of times I'll get calls where people, sometimes it's a wife that wants to train. Oh, my, my husband just came from, you know, Iraq and we want to get him a service dog or we got a puppy from the pound. Oh, we got a German Shepherd or Malinois puppy, you know, from the rescue and we want to make it a service dog for him. And I'm just like, okay, well, who's going to do the training? You know, well, if he has anger issues, he can't do the training right now. He has to deal with that. And so you're going to have to do the training. Well, I don't want to train it. Well, if he's still dealing with his own anger issues, he can't train it either because then it will be abusive. And, oh, you got a Malinois <laughs> and you've never trained a dog before. Well, I got a Malinois because that's the kind they had in military and he liked those. And I'm like, yeah, but that's a different job, <laughs> you know? And so sometimes that's the hard part. If people need to start thinking about those questions before they get a puppy, if they're going to try to train one on their own. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm really glad that you've mentioned the anger part as well, because a lot of us have to go through a lot of therapy before we do consider having an assistance dog, because with anxiety and then autism, like being neurodivergent, having meltdowns and not being able to cope panic attacks that kind of thing it took me years to actually get my own dog so from being a child I was 24 when I got my first dog because mm -hmm. I was so so scared like not even assistance dog for the first five years of his life he was just my pet dog that mm -hmm. you know did demos with dog training and I was so so scared that my anxiety and all of the things that was wrong with me before I was physically disabled was going to affect him in a negative way so I put it off for years before I actually got a dog and I think that's important for people to be aware of as well so if you do have anger issues and that kind of thing it's really important to get it under control or with anxiety I, I was told the wrong information so I've never hurt my dog and I know absolutely never would so I think it's important that people are supported with therapy because someone like myself doesn't want to get a dog at all because they're too scared mm -hmm. um, and then other people on the spectrum like who are angry and can't control it they want to rush in and get a dog and they don't think about the welfare for the dog so I'm really glad that you brought that yeah. up yeah it is it's because because of living near a base um we haven't had it as much because we haven't had as many people deploy you know because we haven't been in active duty for things but when we were actively, you know, in Iraq and Iran and stuff, people were coming back and forth from our local Navy base. And it was like periods of time where I felt like every day I was getting this phone call. And most of the time they already got a dog somewhere. And, um, you know, and if they get puppies now, I just say, just bring them to puppy class because then I can at least see them in that environment. And I can kind of go, okay, before we do any training, let's just see. And then I have to be sort of honest, like this dog is going to need, like this dog wants to go out and like look for bombs. This dog does not want to stay by your side and sleep all day. If you need to see, this is not going to be, you know, they get a border collie and it's like, this dog wants to herd sheep. This dog does not <laughs> want to sit by you right now. So finding that right dog, 
And so I always just try to, you know, like really work with them and be like, okay, this is what you, you know, before. And then if you can talk to somebody before you get that dog. So, you know, even what you're looking for impulse purchasing or adopting of any dog is never a good idea, whether you're having it for a service dog or just a pet. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Impulsivity is not good, but impulsivity is a part of some disabilities and some things. Yeah. And so it's a hard thing because it's an impulsive part of their personality that they need to work on with therapy. And so, um, and I think this is a great, we've had, I didn't know where this conversation was going to go to this, but I think (laughs) it's such a great thing for hopefully people will listen and realize that getting a surface dog, isn't just going to the store and picking something up off the shelf and having it be, you know, it's not getting, you know, something that's just going to, it's not a microwave or it's not, you know, it's not a just, push button thing. And it's not for everyone. It's, and every person and need has a different dog need. So like this client who's um, needs somebody to brace herself, she got a standard poodle. So she got a big dog, which was good. Apparently both the parents were already kind of service dog mentality. So their genetics should be, hopefully he's still kind of a puppy. So it's hard to see, but you know, I may have, if I had talked to her, suggested maybe a golden or a lab, something that was a little sturdier than a, than him because he's not really the biggest bone poodle. But I think he's going to yeah. be okay because she's not the biggest person. She's fairly petite. So, but that's stuff to think about. Like, you know, um, if you are a 300 pound man that might need somebody to help brace you, you need to get a big sturdy dog. So, you know, when you push off, you know, but if you are a, um, you know, a small person and you need a dog for pressure compression, you probably don't want a 180 pound dog laying on your chest. You know, maybe a 50 pound dog is a better, you know, fit for you. So thinking about what you need, personality, you know, and all of that goes, I mean, that's, I try to educate pet, pet owner, you know, pet guardians too, just general but when you're asking them to do a very specific job, service dog, therapy dog, I mean, emotional support is a little bit less critical, but it's service yeah. and therapy. Um, when I used to do evaluations for therapy dogs, um, I did this whole class and they had to do this whole evaluation and I would feel the dogs. And like, there were sometimes I'm like, well, your dog passed all the tests. Yeah. But your dog did not enjoy this experience. Your dog was not like, oh, good. I get to see the person in the wheelchair. Oh, good. I get to see the person that's laying on the bed pretending to be a sick, you know, person. Your dog was like turning away, laying down. Like they went through the motions, but it wasn't their, like that wasn't their passion. And so you may like this, but they don't. So I would have this, there were conversations I had caveats where I'd be like, well, your dog passed the test. Like they didn't jump on anybody. They didn't bite anybody. They didn't bark anything, but you really need to consider if this is the job they want. And if it, if this is something you really want to do, then we need to be very specific. Like maybe you go to a home that somebody and, and be therapy dog for a home, but not in the hospital. Maybe yeah. you, you know, work with adults and not kids, you know, like those kids. And then there were other dogs who were just like, I was born to do this. You know, I want to make people feel better. I want to do it. And then those dogs, you know, were good. And so I think it's important that we really feel, realize that dogs have personality. You know, it's all, it's a, it's not just a go to the store, even guide dogs, you know, you go there for like two weeks to meet and you may not match. 
and exactly. they may change your dogs around because you're not a match. Just like, you know, you, we don't go to the grocery store to find a husband, you know, like, well, oh, I'm going to go and pick, let's see, behind door number one, I'm taking you home and we're going to be happily married. That doesn't happen either. Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. And so we need to um, really realize all those things. So I think it's a yeah. great thing for people to really open their mind about all of this for sure. Yeah. Um, before we wrap up, do you have anything else you would like to share? We've shared so many, like I told you, we might go on tangents, but we shared some really great things. Is there anything else you would like them to know, whether it's about pet professional guild, service dogs, therapy dogs, anything else you would like to share with the audience before we sign off? I think the most important thing is if somebody is considering this path, whether they've got a dog already and it may be a reactive dog and that kind of thing, just reach out to somebody from the pet professional guild because that's my safe place. So Whenever somebody contacts me and they say, like, they're in a certain location, they want an in-person trainer, I always say, go to Pet Professional Girl because I know that they've been vetted, they're insured, and they're going to have a very good knowledge base as well. So if you are interested in going down that route, I would just recommend that you reach out to one of these trainers. And if they don't know the answer, they will gladly say, I don't know, but I can refer you on to somebody I do know will have the answer for you. Just so you get off to the right start straight away and people will be candid and honest. Like yourself, how you said to some people that, you know, the therapy dog doesn't want to be a therapy dog. So that's really important for people to understand as well. But I would definitely always recommend reaching out to Pet Professional Guild for a professional I think that is great. It's so great to have Pet Professional Guild too, because there are tons of other dog training organizations, but I, my pride is Pet Professional Guild because it's all force free. You know, it's not, there's no caveats. It's you are force free. And then my other, for me is my Karen Pryor Academy certified training partner, yeah. because I had to sign a contract saying I wouldn't, which was easy for me to do. Um, I would never use a choke pinch or, you know, shock. I wouldn't use that. And I actually use and say sometimes if I have somebody who comes to me who wants to still use those outside of our training, I'll, I will tell them, I can't work with you if you are using, if you're like coming to me and then when you go home, you use any of those aversives because I've signed contracts saying yeah. that I won't use these. So if you yeah. use them and then you tell somebody, oh, my trainer is Shannon and then it gets back, I could lose my certification because uh, even though that's not what I do. So I have in a handful of times had to really stand that ground of with clients where I want to help them and I want to educate them. But if they're unwilling to listen, I've had to let them go, which is sad, but sometimes they come back around and, you know, say, okay, but um, sometimes they go off and, you know, it's, but I love having groups that have such a like strong sense of, no, this is what we're going to say. We're not going to waver. We're not going to go, well, you know, eh, you know, a tiptoe around it. Pet Professional Guild and Karen Pryor Academy are very like, this is the way we do it. And there's no, there's no excuse for not doing it another way. And I like that about those groups. Absolutely. So. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. It was so fun and um, we'll have to maybe do another one because we could talk about service dogs forever. Absolutely. And I think it's really important that people do it. And congratulations on your position at Pet Professional Guild. Thank That's you. amazing. I love Pet Professional Guild. I'm, I am, um, 
got real busy and stopped being able to make webinars. So I'm back. I'll be back on Pet Professional Guild with some of my webinars, new webinars. So I'll be presenting there. And um, oh, cool. I really think Pet Professional Guild is a great, and it's just going to keep growing. So it's an awesome organization. So anyone who's listening, we will have links. But if you are interested in any of this, check out Pet Professional Guild. If you're looking for service dogs, you can look at the assistance group through Pet Professional Guilds and Natasha will be there as the chair. And um, I hope that this helps you guys and helps your dogs. So thank you so much, Natasha, for thank being you. with us today.